Some of the people in this room, those of us that are older, remember Black Monday. We were in Kansas City preparing to start our third congregation, and on that Monday morning, October 19, 1987, we learned that global stock markets had just crashed. The crash started in Hong Kong, and in hours it had migrated to Europe and then on to the United States. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 508 points. It was a 22.61% drop, the largest single-day decline of the stock market in U.S. history. Even though a stock market crash is defined as a significant loss of wealth on paper, that unexpected, sudden, and significant freefall got people's attention, even those that weren't invested in Wall Street at that time were alarmed after hearing about that. Financial mega shifts do tend to do that because money matters to most people and money matters to God. That's the reason it's mentioned so often in Scripture. One of those instances is found in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. That sermon uh, is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This text is found from Matthew 6, beginning at verse 19. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There are three things we all have in common. Three things we all share in together. The first is time. Time. Each person in this room has the same amount of time that someone else has. No one has more than 60 seconds in a minute, and no one has more than 60 minutes in an hour. We each have the same amount of time. The difference between us is in how we manage that time. Even in in advanced age, I admit I still haven't mastered time management. Second is talents. Talents. Talents are inherited generational genetic created abilities. We receive talents from parents, grandparents, and other ancestors. Talents range from excellent hand-eye coordination, incredible intellect, unusual strength, fast-twitch muscle, perfect musical pitch, and on and on. Those talents can then be incorporated into developing different skill sets, riding a bike, performing a surgical procedure, operating a backhoe, doing cross-stitch, rebuilding a diesel engine, using accounting procedures to conduct an audit, and again, on and on. Each of us has some talent. Although some talents are stranger than others, some people are ambidextrous. Ambidextrous means being able to use both right and left hands equally, and also being able to use them in the same sense at the same time. Only 1% of the population are ambidextrous, such as uh, artist Leonardo da Vinci, figure skater Michelle Kwan, Beatle Paul McCarthy, uh, baseball phenom Pete Rose, statesman Benjamin Franklin, and former President Harry Truman. There is a downside to being ambidextrous, though. Ambidextrous persons are more likely to possess a particular gene that is linked to schizophrenia. 
So if you're ambidextrous, that's great, but you're also probably nuts. Just want you to know. <laughs> Third, after talent, after, uh, after time and talent, there are treasures. Treasures is a reference to someone's monies and material possessions or someone's stuff. These statements we just read from Matthew are addressing treasures. It's interesting that from a statistical perspective, 15%, 15% of all that Jesus said or taught that is recorded in Scripture was related to this subject of treasures. That is a greater percentage than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. The reason Jesus put such a strong emphasis on money and material possessions is because there is a fundamental connection between someone's spiritual status and how he or she handles financial matters. That connection is described in some instructions from John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist, also called John the Baptizer or John the Immerser, uh, since baptism and baptizing was his primary focus. He was an unusual man. Jesus said that John was the greatest man to be born up to that time. John and Jesus were actually related since their mothers were cousins, although the Greek word translated there in the Gospels is uh, translated as cousins means kinsman or kinsperson or relative. So it might not have been or meant first cousin, but Mary, Jesus' mother, and Elizabeth, John's mother, were related, uh, in some sense related. So John and Jesus were related. John wore clothes made from camel's hair, and his diet consisted of locusts or grasshoppers and honey, and he spent much time in the wilderness. Notice Luke 3, verse 7. Then he, this is John the baptizer, said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers. That was a strange greeting. He didn't know these people. These people came out to see him. And this is his opening comment. John called those people that came to see him a bunch of snakes. Now that's strange to me. He continued, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. John told the crowd to conduct themselves so as to demonstrate um, that they had actually repented and turned to God. Verse 10, so the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? These people wanted to know what to do to demonstrate evidence for sincere repentance. John was the forerunner to Jesus. He was the public relations person for Jesus. His mission was to prepare people to receive Jesus as the promised Messiah. Messiah means uh, the anointed ruler from God. And Jesus was that. God had promised the Jewish people, the collective Jewish people, a Messiah, a ruler. He would rule them and then through them rule the entire earth. And uh, so John, his mission was to prepare people for accepting, receiving Jesus as the Messiah. In order to do that, as a prerequisite, John preached repentance. Repentance means uh, to change one's mind. Repentance means a mind change. And that mind change results in someone turning around and going in a different and opposite direction. 
John challenged these people to change their mind and turn from sin and turn from legalistic self-righteous religion and turn and receive Jesus as the Messiah. Repentance should precede Jesus, receiving Jesus as Messiah and someone's Savior. Understand something, receiving Jesus doesn't mean adding Jesus to someone's religious portfolio. No, receiving Jesus means uh, that Jesus replaces someone's religious portfolio. Salvation is just Jesus from beginning to end. John wanted to see some evidence of that repentance uh, before he would baptize someone. In verse 8, John challenged the multitudes to demonstrate actual evidence of that repentance. He wanted to see in people uh, behavioral patterns that were consistent with repentance because the evidence of genuine repentance that brings someone to salvation is an apparent change in someone after salvation. So John had been preaching to different groups that were each interested in being baptized. Now, baptism means identification. There are some seven different forms of baptism mentioned throughout Scripture. And John's baptism was unique. Baptism meaning identification. John, baptizing someone, identified that person with John's message that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And that's the reason John baptized Jesus himself. John told them that in order to be eligible to be baptized, someone had to demonstrate to him that he had repented and turned from sin and turned from man-made religion and had turned to Jesus as Messiah. Now, three different groups wanted John to tell them what to do in order to demonstrate evidence of that repentance. Notice, uh, John told each group something different, but all three answers are related, as we're going to see. Notice verse 11. He, John the baptizer, answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Meaning someone that has food and more than enough food for himself, he should be you know, available to contribute food to someone that doesn't have any. Uh, that was more of a generic response. This, this, these instructions were applicable to the entire group as a whole. That meant that sharing basic necessities such as clothing and food with those that had needed of those things would serve as partial evidence that someone had experienced repentance. Now, we understand it's theoretically possible for someone that has never repented, never turned from sin, never received Christ, uh, to share with someone in need from a different motivation. Sometimes the motivation is legitimate, sometimes it's not. But true repentance... Uh, results in selflessness and sharing. Uh, then the human author Luke recorded questions from two specific groups of people. The first was generic instructions to all of them. And then notice, first there were some tax collectors. Verse 12, Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Verse 13, And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Tax collectors were also called publicans. The Jewish community considered them traitors because a Roman IRS agent, if that person was Jewish, was collecting taxes from his own people, the Jewish people, to in turn fund the hated Roman government. 
And so he was considered a traitor to his people. Tax collectors were vilified and scorned. Tax collectors weren't permitted to worship in the Jewish synagogue and were forbidden to testify in a public court of law. So they were the outcast of society, tax collectors were, and there's a reason for that. Now notice, John didn't tell those men to resign from being tax collectors. He didn't say, hey, you're in the wrong business, resign, get out now. He didn't do that. Because in a conceptual sense, it isn't wrong for the government to, to collect taxes. Although our nation could use some serious tax reform, 61% of the U.S. population, some 107 million adults, did not, did not pay federal income taxes in 2020. Now, one contributing factor to that number was unemployment from COVID lockdowns, so that number should hopefully drop some in time, although it would still be probably a normal almost 50% of the population doesn't pay federal income tax. The left constantly argues that the rich don't pay their fair share in taxes. I still remember hearing Bernie Sanders and you know AOC constantly talk about the 1%, the dreaded, hated 1%, um, not understanding that most of them are in that 1%. But you know, they're the terrible people that don't pay their fair share in taxes. Listen to these statistics. In 2020, the top 1% of income earners paid 40%. 40% of all federal income taxes, the 1%. The top 10% of income earners paid 71% of federal income taxes. The bottom 50% of people that actually paid taxes, as, in, as I, we said, more didn't pay than did. But the bottom 50% of people that actually paid taxes paid less than 3% of all federal income taxes. So who hasn't paid their fair share? would be a question. John told these men, though, these publicans, these tax collectors, not to collect more taxation monies than the government required them to collect. Why did he tell them that? Because tax collectors would normally inflate the amount they told people that was owed. Tax collectors would normally increase their personal profits through ex extorting exorbitant amounts of monies over and above what the Roman government required them to collect from someone in taxes. I mean, sometimes they would inflate the number to twice, three times, or four times as much as the government required. And they would then, then give the government what the government required, and they would pocket all the rest. That was actually theft, extortion. So John told these tax collectors not to extort, not to steal from people. Sincere repentance results in fair and honest business practices. That's the essence of that response. The second group were some Roman soldiers. Now, these soldiers could have been under Herod Antipas' command, or these soldiers could have been the Judean police. Notice verse 14. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Soldiers were also prone to take advantage of people. So John told them to do three things in particular uh, to manifest genuine repentance. One, don't intimidate don't intimidate. In modern language, don't shake someone down for money or for a favor. 
Second, don't slander. Slander is a false accusation. Don't issue false accusations against someone innocent in an attempt to extort money from them. Third, be content. Be content. Someone that is content with his compensation is never tempted to fudge the company's expense reward. Never tempted to outright steal from someone. So notice John told each group something different in particular, but notice all three answers are related. Notice he, he told them as a generic group, as a whole, to contribute clothes and food to the poor. Verse 11. Second, he told a group of internal revenue agents from the Roman government not to collect additional taxes from people that didn't owe additional taxes. That's verse 13. And third, he told a group of soldiers to be content with their current wages and not to extort money from people through intimidation. That's verse 14. Now, I never noticed this before. But please understand that each answer from John related to finances and material possessions. That's so interesting because no one in that audience had asked John about those things. No one had brought up contributions and taxation and extortion. No one had mentioned those things. Instead, the people wanted John just to tell them what to do to demonstrate evidence of repentance. The people just wanted to know what was evidence of true spiritual transformation. And that was his response. The reason Jesus and Scripture itself put such a strong emphasis on money and material possessions is because there is a fundamental and undeniable connection between someone's spiritual condition and his attitude about financial matters. It's important to understand that someone's approach to income, to earning income, to expenditures, meaning spending, his approach and attitude about debt and debts, his approach to savings, his approach to investments, his approach to giving and contributions, and his approach to all his material possessions, that attitude and approach is so essential to spiritual health that John couldn't even address that question from these people unless he mentioned those issues. There's an interesting book from a prolific Christian author named Randy Alcorn. Randy uh, authors uh, fiction, uh, novels, hope he loves his novels, and he authors nonfiction and uh, I'm, I'm, Tony and I are actually finishing a book called Heaven, which I think is probably a classic book on heaven in print from him. It's, it's a very, very good book. Um, and so he's a prolific author. He, in one of his uh, publications, addresses this subject. And uh, so that I'm not accused of plagiarism, I'm going to credit him for some of this material. But when we read a biblical text, or if we listen to a sermon, we should attempt to find the big idea. What is the big idea there? Mr. Alcorn, after reading this text we just read, identifies the big idea from this section from Matthew 6 as the treasure principle. He has called it the treasure principle. And he defines the treasure principle as, notice, we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. That's the big idea from this passage. The treasure principle. We can't take it with us, but 
we can send it on ahead. It's that simple. The things we hang on to here are going to be ultimately lost to us. But the things we send on to heaven are going to be ours forever. Let's examine this treasure principle as it uh, is described in this text from Matthew. The normal human inclination in an affluent society such as ours is to focus on acquiring material possessions. We are all guilty of doing that, all of us. We are conditioned to become preoccupied with possessing things. Although people in Jesus' time were almost as materialistic and avarice and covetous and full of greed as our people now. So this isn't a problem unique to this age. This isn't a problem unique to us. Jesus addressed that common selfish materialistic urge starting in verse 19. Notice, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. A more literal translation of that phrase is, do not treasure up treasures for yourselves. Do not treasure up treasures for yourselves. In the original language, this carries the idea of someone stacking coins and stacking coins and stacking coins and stacking more coins. So the idea is stockpiling and hoarding monies or possessions. Now, don't misunderstand. This verse isn't discouraging saving. God encourages us to save. God expects us to save. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8, tells us to save just as ants save for wintertime. In Dave Ramsey's uh, course, Financial Peace University, uh, that, that course is built around seven, <clears throat> seven baby steps for getting out of debt. Um, Hopi and I have done all the steps except one. Uh, we have not at this juncture paid off our house. That's the last step for us to do. Um, but baby step number one in his format is saving an emergency fund of $1,000. It is amazing the number of people I meet and counsel with that don't have savings of even $1,000 for an emergency. That number, though, should probably be upgraded as real emergencies are now most often much more than $1,000. Just four new tires can cost almost that much, especially if it's a truck. So this phrase, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, isn't a comment on savings. It isn't intended to discourage savings. We are to save. But this is a comment on riches, accumulating riches and wealth that is not intended to be used in a constructive and beneficial sense. One of the most dramatic examples of that was a woman named Hetty Green. Hetty Green, in 1864, at age 30, she inherited from her father's estate millions, which was an unimaginable sum of money at that time. And that's because since World War II, the U.S. dollar has lost almost 95% of its purchasing power. She was called, and this is endearing, uh, she was called the Witch of Wall Street. Uh, she was an investor. Uh, another piece of trivia. There is now an estimated 18.6 million millionaires in the U.S. 18.6 million of us are millionaires. I am not included in that statistic. Sorry, I haven't. I'm not there. 
We'll probably never be there. It's okay. But uh, at, at Miss Green's time, there were only a handful of actual millionaires. And she was one of them. But she didn't act like a multimillionaire. She had the meager existence of a pauper. She would eat cold oatmeal at breakfast, not wanting to spend the fraction of a cent it required to heat it. She was employed at a bank, and at lunch she'd pull out a sandwich from her grubby pocket. Guinness Records people call Ms. Green the greatest miser ever. Hetty's son was once injured in a sledding accident, and she tried to get treatment for him at a free clinic. But she was recognized, and she was told that she would be charged. She would have to pay for the services from the doctor. But she was unwilling to pay. She was upset. So she treated the wound herself. But because she wasn't a medical professional, her son's injured leg got infected, and ultimately it had to be amputated. That should help mother and son bond. That, that was, that's great. Um, it is said at her death in 1916, Ms. Green's estate was valued at more than $200 million, which this morning, considering the time value of money, its change over time, would be equal to $4.76 billion. She laid up, she stacked up, she stored up, she hoarded up treasures on earth. And Jesus said, we are not to do that. Contrast Hetty Green to the late 18th century evangelist and founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley. Mr. Wesley was an itinerant preacher. Uh, he rode horseback. He was a circuit-riding preacher. He rode horseback to different congregations and preached. He averaged preaching twice a day, every day. And he rode on horseback more than a quarter of a million miles in order to do that. Still, he had time to author some 40 books, although it is said he authored or contributed as an author to 233 books. So he earned significant royalties on those publications. But his goal, he said, his objective was to give away, uh, give so much away that he would have almost nothing left behind after he died. He was born in 1703. And at age 28, he started to limit his personal expenses so he would have more money to give away. The first year, his income was 30 pounds. He found that he could survive on 28 pounds, so he gave two pounds away. In the second year, his income doubled, so he held his expenses even though he said it was still a comfortable income, so he held his expenses at 28 pounds, and he had 32 pounds to give away. In the third year, his income jumped uh, to 90 pounds, and so he gave away 62 pounds. During his lifetime, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds a year, but he almost never let his expenses get above 30 pounds. He said he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at a time. That so baffled the English tax commissioners that they investigated him in 1776, unusual date to do that, insisting that he, that for a man of his income, he must have some silver, some silver dishes or silver plate that he was not paying excise tax on. Uh, 
So he wrote them this memo and said, Sirs, I have two silver spoons at London and two more at Bristol. This is all the silver plate I have at the present, and I shall not buy any more when so many people around me need bread. Meaning, I need to feed people. That's more important than purchasing silver. That great evangelist died at age 87, and the only money mentioned in his will were the small coins to be found in his pockets and dresser. Most of the 30,000 plus pounds he had earned in his lifetime had been given away. Before he died, he left specific instructions that his body was to be buried in nothing that cost more than something made from wool. Wool at that time was inexpensive. No expensive silk, no expensive satin. His last will and testament directed that whatever coins remained in his bureau or dresser and in his pockets at death was to be equally divided among four poor itinerant, itinerant preachers. He specifically requested that he didn't want a hearse or a coach to participate in his funeral. And from his remaining Monday, monies, he wanted six poor men in need of employment, to be given a pound each to be pallbearers and carry his body to the grave. That's amazing. Now, both Ms. Green, Hetty Green, and evangelist John Wesley, I believe, represented extremes. Ms. Green was an absolute embarrassment to humankind and a horrific person. And although he was an honorable, honorable man, and much to be admired about him, the hyper-benevolent practices of the great evangelist Wesley are probably impractical. I don't think that's best, so I'm not suggesting we go to that same extreme at all. I believe it's also a good thing to pass on a reasonable inheritance to succeeding generations. That is a biblical practice. Notice Proverbs 13, verse 22. A good man... Notice, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Someone's children's children are his grandchildren. That's an interesting statement. That verse doesn't read, a good man leaves an inheritance to both his children and his children's children. It doesn't read like that. Nothing is said about passing on an inheritance to someone's children. It only comments on parents passing something on to grandchildren. The more I consider that, that makes total sense because grandchildren are God's reward to parents for not strangling their children. So that makes total sense to me. Right? Okay, that's a, that's a joke. All right. Actually, Numbers 27, verses 7 and 8 comment on passing on an inheritance to our children, so we should do both. It is also not wrong to pass on someone's inheritance to a Christian organization or to an, another nonprofit organization as an endowment. Most Christian colleges and universities couldn't exist without endowments. For example, one of the largest, if not the largest, I think the enrollment considering resident learning and on, distant learning online is some 100,000 students. Uh, Liberty University has an endowment of 1.71 billion dollars, an amount that is actually larger than most state colleges and universities. Now, the, the university that has the most endowment, this shouldn't be a shock, is Harvard at $40 billion. 
Now much of that endowment money is inheritance money. People decide before death to give a portion of their estate after death to a particular institution. And that's a great thing. And that should be encouraged. But the point in verse 19, uh, we are instructed not to store up, treasure up treasures on earth. Storing up treasures on earth means money and material possessions that are stored or banked to present an image of success or an image of richness. It's sort of a status symbol. It can also mean money saved primarily to overindulge oneself. Uh, the critical word is overindulge. This is excessive spending. This is sort of what the government does. Uh, this is, you know, excess. Um, to have a possession obsession, meaning this mentality that we have to have this and we have to have that and we must have that. We struggle to practice delayed gratification. So we just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and accumulate stuff. If you, if you don't think you haven't accumulated, just sell your house and move. It'll freak you out what you have that you don't need. One reason Jesus said we are not to do that is because treasures on earth do not last. It's not that all treasures are bad in a moral and or ethical sense. Because probably most treasures are not bad. Most treasures are amoral, meaning not moral, not immoral. But the problem is, people, treasures on earth don't endure. Treasures on earth are only temporary. According to this passage, earth's treasures are subject to moth, rust, and thieves. Notice verse 19 continues. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. In ancient times, someone's material value was measured in part through the clothes he wore. Now that is true to some degree here among the elite, the rich, the very rich. Uh, then though it was more so than now. Unlike the mass production of clothing now, in ancient times each article of clothing was individually made. So garments represented a considerable investment. At that time the best clothes were made from wool and moths loved to eat wool. That meant that even the richest person had to protect his clothes from destructive insects. Then the statement is made that rust also destroys earth's treasures. The word rust, as we understand rust, most often means a reddish coating that is formed on iron or steel or some metal after prolonged exposure to air and moisture. moisture. And some of us have seen that kind of rust on something. Uh, but that's not what this rust is referring to. In ancient times, someone's material value was also measured according to how much grain he managed to accumulate. If he had barns full of grain, then he was considered rich. Some commentators teach that this rust mentioned here isn't the rust we normally think of as rust, but this rust referred to those insects and rodents that ate the grain. The original Greek word that is translated here as rust is spelled B-R-O-S-I-S, pronounced brosis. And brosis means an eating, eating something. That Greek word brosis means to eat. 
And that word is used to describe eating each time that word is used and mentioned throughout the Greek New Testament. That original word brosis means the exact same thing here in verse 18 or 19. So that rust here could refer to grain that was eaten by mice, rats, and insects. So pests could literally wipe out someone's entire harvest. It is estimated even now. Each year, rodents consume $2 billion of feed that was intended for other animals. Mice and rat control is a serious agricultural problem. Verse 19 continues. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Now, typically we think of people most people, other than safety deposit boxes and things, most people have valuables in their homes. And so thieves break into someone's home and steal stuff like that. In ancient society, though, people often buried valuables, non-perishable values, valuables, buried them in the ground away from their house. Sometimes people would bury valuables in a field, dig a, dig a hole, put the valuables in the ground, cover it up. Sometimes that happened, and so that phrase break in actually meant to dig through, to dig through. So this could mean someone digging through the dirt in a field in order to find someone's treasures and valuables that had been buried there. And that is what thieves often did. The point of verse 19 is that nothing we own is completely safe from destruction or theft. And these three statements we just read describe the limited life expectancy of earth's treasures. In addition to theft, there are tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, flooding, and sometimes uncontrollable fires. We have a family first service uh, visiting us and have for some months from San Diego. And there was a horrific fire there not long ago. They lost everything their entire house, all their possessions, everything. It took them almost two years to recover. This happens all the time. We know that. In California, we witnessed multi-million dollar homes, including contents, come crashing down hillsides and massive mudslides. And often none of them were insured. All that someone possesses, no matter how much someone possesses, no matter how valuable the stuff is someone possesses, all of it can disappear, people, in minutes and sometimes even seconds. It's not that earth's treasures might be lost, but earth's treasures are always ultimately going to be lost. It's not a matter of if we lose them, it's when we lose them. Second Peter 3 verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will burn with a fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it. Notice, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. People, that is serious climate change. We've addressed this before. God has scheduled a prophetic moment in time when he's going to literally burn up this present earth and all its contents and then from that holocaust recreate a new earth and that recreated earth is going to last throughout the eternal age heaven's present headquarters is called the new jerusalem 
it is described in Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the New Testament, the, that incredible configuration of the New Jerusalem is going to descend from heaven, the third heaven, and land on the new recreated earth and remain there throughout the eternal age. As Christians, our permanent residence will be a, an actual address inside that new Jerusalem located on that recreated earth. That means that this present earth this present earth we're standing on and this present earth and all that is on this present earth is ultimately going to burn. Do we understand that? It's going to burn. Does climate change exist? Yes, it does. Climate change has existed since man's original sin. This is nothing new. It's always changed. Do humans now contribute to that climate change? Probably. But contrary to the media, how much is human contribution has not been determined. It is debatable. It is controversial. There's opinions on both sides of that. Should we take reasonable precautions to safeguard and protect our environment? Sure we should. We are managers of this Earth's environment. We are to be conservationists and sane and sensible environmentalists. Yes, but these doom and gloom climate exaggerators, such as this snot-nosed environmental activist teenager from Sweden, this Greta Thunberg, she's so... I said for service, she has an unfortunate face. It's because she's so angry. She's, her face is distorted and twisted all the time. She's so angry at us. And she screams at us and says that we humans are on a mission to destroy this planet. Spoiler alert! God's going to destroy this planet. He's going to burn it up. Good night. Read the Bible. It's not that Earth's treasures might not exist. But earth's treasures are always ultimately going to not exist. So it's an irrefutable, undeniable statement, according to the treasure principle, that we cannot take anything with us. Job 1 verse 21. Job made this astute statement. Naked came I from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return there. 1 Timothy 6 verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we can care nothing out. It's that simple. In 2005, country music legend George Strait, and I'm not a big, I don't know a lot about country music. Um, I know that's kind of a big thing here, but I just, some of it I like, most of it I, I just don't listen much. But George Strait, I know he's a big name, or has been, released a song called You'll Be There. It's an interesting song as it addresses the afterlife. The song is actually an ode or a lyrical poem to someone that had died. And the artist talks about his journey to heaven to see this person again. Part of that song reads, I'll see you on the other side, if I make it. And it might be a long, hard ride, but I'm going to take it. Sometimes it seems I don't have a prayer. Let the weather take me anywhere. But I know that I want to go where the streets are gold. Because you'll be there. Oh my, my. You don't bring nothing with you here. And you can't take nothing back. I ain't never seen a hearse with a luggage rack. <laughs> that last part is sound theology. 
The first half of the treasure principle reads, we cannot, cannot take it with us. Either our riches and material possessions are forfeited before we die through some means of destruction, earthquakes, fire floods, mudslides, tornadoes, theft, or repossessions, or else our possessions are taken from us after we die. And remember, we all die. The irrefutable fact is that none of this earth's treasures are permanent. Earth's treasures, our stuff, doesn't last. So what are we to do about that? I understand there are investment experts known as market timers. And these market timers read signs that the stock market is about to take a downward turn. And on the basis of that prognosis, recommended their clients, their investors, that they switch their funds into more dependable and safer investment vehicles, such as, you know, money markets, treasury bills, certificates of deposit, more conservative stuff. You know, don't put it in high-risk stocks, but, you know, the, the market's going to change dramatically, so let's be safe and let's move the money around into safer, more conservative investment vehicles. Jesus Christ functions as the foremost market timer. He tells us to start switching investment vehicles now. He said, now. He instructs us to tra start transferring some of our funds from earth to heaven. He has told us to transfer our funds from an economy that is ultimately going to take a permanent nosedive to heaven's economy that is totally dependable and that God insures himself. The monies we send on to heaven are insured for an infinite amount more than the normal $100,000 and is insured by the real FDIC, the Father's Deposit Insurance Corporation. Jesus said that accumulating and storing up treasures on earth isn't the best investment advice. He advises against it. He recommends something better. Verse 20, he said, but... But, meaning instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, our treasures here aren't permanent. Our treasures there, if we invest there, are permanent. Jesus does actually want us to store up treasures and store them up for ourselves. On the surface, that might sound selfish, but it's not a selfish concept. It's acting out of enlightened self-interest. Jesus wants us to store up treasures for ourselves, but, but he wants us to stop storing them up at the wrong places and start storing them up at the right place. He wants us to store them up in heaven. Notice the first line from verse 20 reads, But lay up for yourselves treasures. Where? On earth? No. Bad investment. Long term. No. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. The treasures in heaven Jesus mentioned are spiritual riches. And spiritual riches are true riches because spiritual riches are permanent and eternal. Storing up riches in heaven might consist of uh, helping in a soup line at a rescue mission. Feeding the poor. Storing up treasures in heaven might consist of contributing to uh, social services program. I mean, contributing clothes and other items to, to fish in Carson City. Friends and service helping. Storing up treasures in heaven might mean contributing on a consistent basis to the ministries at Shadow Mountain Church. Or sending a check to the Crisis Pregnancy Center called Life Choices. Those people are saving babies constantly. 
or sending a check to the disaster relief organization called Samaritan's Purse, and they are deserving of support. Or purchase new tires for a single mother who has a very limited income. Or bringing someone in need bags of groceries. Or supporting an underprivileged child in one of these third world countries through Compassion International. The opportunities to send our treasures on ahead and invest in heaven people are endless, endless. I've mentioned this before, George D. Rockefeller died in 1937 at age 97. He founded the Standard Oil Company and he made a massive fortune off oil. He became the first billionaire. And if we adjust for inflation, then at his peak, he had a net worth, hang on, of $423 billion. He became the richest man in modern times. In comparison, Jeff Bezos is now the richest man alive at $177 billion. Rockefeller had $423 billion in equivalents. I just learned a piece of trivia. I learned that Mr. Rockefeller was also a faithful member, faithful and committed member of the Erie Street Baptist Church. He taught Sunday school there. He was a trustee. He acted as the church clerk and sometimes richest man alive ever, modern times, sometimes he was the church janitor. Now that's admirable. I applaud that. His commitment to church, that's fantastic. But that doesn't necessarily mean he was a converted man. I don't know his spiritual status. I can't comment on that. I hope he was a believer. I'd love to meet him in heaven. Um, but we don't know. Because someone can join the church and still miss Jesus. I hope he didn't. But after Rockefeller died, someone asked his accountant. He was curious. He said, uh, I'm curious. Exactly how much money did Mr. Rockefeller leave behind? His accountant paused for a moment and then said, All of it? All of it. People, that's the treasure principle. We can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. Let's bow our heads. Father, I know this is so elementary and so basic. It really is. But we need to be reminded of these things because we forget. Life here is so short. Life on the other side of the grave is infinite. And we need to be investing in that life, not just investing in this life. So God, help us to learn from this, that we cannot, cannot take anything with us. And even that which we leave behind, if we're careful, we can use it to be productive for people and for your cause, even after we're gone. So help us to make wise choices. We'll talk about some of that in a, in a coming lesson. But Lord, thank you for this word that you've given to us. Thank you that we uh, understand we have a better perspective on things than most people do because we have your word to instruct us. And so we thank you. We pray that we'll not just learn these things academically, that they just won't be a part of our mind, but they will flesh themselves out in our actions and become practical in our lives. So again, thank you for your goodness to us and thank you most of all for your patience with us. 
Thank you for loving us, and I thank you, and I ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.